Uh, well, we're continuing, as E mentioned, to uh, navigate the Gospel of John. Uh, showed you the trailer from the 1991 movie City Slickers. Uh, it does tie in well with the theme we're going to talk about today, which I've titled A Brand New Way of Life. Interestingly, these city slickers, these three guys uh, who seem to be going nowhere and not feeling really good about that, uh, embrace this new experience, and it dramatically changes their lives and how they see themselves. We're going to talk about a conversation Jesus has with his disciples as he gives them a picture of their future and three things that are going to dramatically change their lives and, because of that, our lives. But here's the thing. Not everybody in the world is uh, as successful at such an endeavor as the disciples or those three guys in the movie. You may have heard about the two New Yorkers. These guys lived in New York their whole lives. They've never actually really gone out of the city. All they really know is the big city. Uh, they grew up there. They went to college there. They got jobs there. They married women from there. <laughs> Rarely ventured out of Manhattan. If you think such people do not exist, they really do. Uh, I hired one of them at the CIA. <laughs> took about 24 months to get him his clearances, get all the hiring process wrapped up. He joins our staff. He lasts three months and then abruptly resigns. Reason? He could not handle not being in Manhattan. <laughs> that is a true story. Anyway, these two guys from uh, Manhattan got sick of the traffic and taxes, and they ended up buying a ranch in Texas. And they decided the first thing they needed was a mule. We're going to need to plow some ground, they thought. So they must have seen that in the old movies. So they went to a neighboring rancher, and they asked if he had a mule for sale. He goes, nope. Well, they were disappointed and about to leave, but then one of them spots a stack of what turns out to be water, uh, honeydew melons leaning up against the uh, barn. They said, what are those? What are those things over there? By this time, the rancher pretty much figured out that these guys were really just hopeless city slickers, so he kind of played a joke on him. He said, uh, well, those are mule eggs. You just take it home, it hatches, and you'll have your mule. He said, they said, okay, great. So he gave them one. He put it in the back of their brand-new truck. It's bouncing down the asphalt road. It, the thing actually bounces out, and it plops open on the pavement. They finally see it in the rearview mirror, but they can't turn around in the middle of a one-lane road, so they have to drive on to find a place they can back up. In the meantime, there's a Texas jackrabbit that comes up and starts eating the melon. By the time these guys turn around, they come up on the scene, one of them says, look, our mule egg is hatched. Let's, let's go get the mule. So they start running after the jackrabbit. They cannot catch him. It's too fast. And they finally flop on the ground exhausted. And one of them says, man, we lost our mule. And the other guy said, I think it's okay because I don't think I wanted to plow that fast anyway. Hopeless, right? Okay, the story about the hire I made at CIA, that's a true story. I'm not sure that this one's a true story. <laughs> Could be just a joke somewhere. But anyway, here's what's going on. The disciples are gathered around the table of Jesus at the Passover, upper room, discourse. And uh, my guess is they're a, bit, a, little, a little bit naive about their future, just as those two New Yorkers were about ranching. I discovered a lot of people are a little bit naive when it comes to following Christ, being a disciple. A lot of people think, well, you follow Jesus, you just kind of add him to your already complicated life. Yeah, I just, I need to be a little religious, I need to do some stuff, I need to maybe go to church, so I'm just going to add Jesus in as a component to my life. 
truth is Jesus has a lot more in store for us than that. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's a, oh, wait a minute, new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So a Christian is made new with a brand new way of life. And so we're going to discover some of those truths in these five verses today. Uh, so let me just give you a little background so we can hop right in, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you everything you need to know. This is an interrogation? I don't know. This is the Last Supper. It's an upper room discourse. John is the only gospel writer that actually includes all of this information in his gospel for us. So beginning in verse 31, Judas has now left the room. Jesus is concentrating on the remaining 11 disciples and tells them what's going to be new about their future. Three things that are new. They're going to have a new perspective. They're going to have a new relationship with him, and they're given a new commandment. So I'm going to unpack these five verses, but let's read them again because you guys were still having so much fun uh, meeting each other, so um, maybe you missed it. So let's, John 13, starting in verse 31. When he, referring to Judas, had gone out, he's left the scene, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children... Yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so also I say to you, where I'm going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the first thing I think that a new believer comes to recognize when he or she comes to faith in Christ is kind of a new way of looking at things, a new perspective. When I got saved at age 12, the term born again was used a lot in, that, in those days, uh, kind of just to describe what it meant to become a Jesus follower. And, and with that came the idea that, you know, stuff is going to happen. Stuff's going to happen, right? Um, and if your perspective is right, you're going to find out that you're going to be able to get through almost anything. But changes are going to happen in your relationship with God through Christ. So the new concept is that, that things, you know, well, maybe let's say this. It, it kind of got inculcated into, my, into my, in my brain that, okay, you're now a Christian. Expect things to happen. Expect some things to change. I'm not sure that I knew at age 12 what the depth of those changes would be, but I knew something was supposed to happen there was an expectation on God's end that I was going to be open to some changes in my life. Well, our, our passage today kind of marks the change in the tone of the room that evening, as well as what Jesus is about to tell them. He's been talking about being betrayed. And in verse 31, the betrayer parts the scene, and the dynamic changes. Now it's just Jesus and his 11 true followers. And Jesus says this, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. What's he talking about? When Jesus speaks about glorified or his glory, what does, he, what does he mean? Well, he's speaking about a couple things. First of all, Jesus is looking beyond the cross when he will be received up in glory in heaven. He's thinking about what's going to happen after the cross. He's going to be arrested later this very night. He'll endure several trials, all conducted illegally according to Jewish law because they're not supposed to have trials at night. He'll be beaten, mocked. He'll drive spikes through his hands and feet and then crucify him. But after all that mankind could dish out, all the horrible ways they're going to treat him, it'll be over, and he'll be going home. 
And so the last thing Jesus on the cross uh, says, or the first thing he says is, you know, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, right? And all of that suffering at that point becomes past tense. He's going to be in glory. So he looks beyond the suffering he's about to experience and sees all the future glory that he will experience. He's going home. Writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 talks about this, says this, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. It wasn't a fun experience. He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I just want to make a point with that. Following Christ should give us a little bit of that perspective. You see, all too often we tend to look at the immediate in our lives, what's going on right now, issues that we're having, the problems we're having, the things we don't like about what's happening. We're looking at how hard the road is right now instead of considering where this road is actually ultimately taking us, which is to glory in heaven. If we have our perspective right, we can get to pretty much anything down here. There is glory for us waiting ahead. You have probably heard people say, oh, you Christians, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Well, I think the reverse can be true. You can be so earthly-minded, you're not doing anybody any good, including yourself. Your perspective is just on what's going on right now in my life, which, if you think about it, planet Earth is just one giant orb floating in space that really is a killing field. Some are killed in the womb, some die at the age of 105. But in the end, death visits every one of us. So for Christians, the key to having joy as we walk through this planet is to get the right perspective, to see how things ultimately are going to pan out for us, that glory is going to be revealed beyond just our physical deaths. I'll tell you about a person, I think, that you know uh, whose whole life has been changed by such a gaze, a heavenly gaze. Her name is Johnny Erickson. Uh, it's now Johnny Erickson Tata. She's lived most of her life as a quadriplegic. She was in a little diving accident as a young swimmer. But she is able to look past the wheelchair with joy because of this truth. She will often quote Romans chapter 8, where Paul said this, where the suffering of this present time is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. She's now 73 years old. And she's waiting for that while marching valiantly and joyfully through this life. So Jesus is looking beyond the cross. That, that's one of his perspectives. But I think something else. He's actually looking at the cross itself. He's looking at the cross as being glorified. So often when he is spoken about being glorified, the Bible says he's actually speaking about the cross, his death on the cross. Now, why would that be a picture of glory? Pretty simple. As horrible as, that's, is that is, is gonna, as, horrible as he's going to feel, and, this, uh, and the fact that the Father sort of turns his back on him when he becomes sin for us, he'll, it's going to open a door of salvation to multitudes of people down the generations. See, Hebrews 2 again. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons or offspring to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So God's going to use the cross not only to make Jesus the perfect Savior, but through that salvation, the cross is going to offer, he's going to bring many sons to glory. Sons is just a catch-all phrase for offspring, men, women, boys, girls. It'll bring glory to the Father because that was the plan of the Father from the beginning in sending Jesus down here. So now a door is open for salvation because of the cross. Jesus looking all the way down through history, 2,000 years in advance, seeing you and you and you and you and you and me 
who come to believe in him, and he's anticipating that joy of salvation for us and being able to experience heaven with him. That was glory to him. Maybe it's cheating. I just want to take you ahead quickly to John chapter 17 real fast. I just want to highlight a couple of verses where all these truths kind of pop up as Jesus is actually in prayer to his Father. This is after the upper room. They've departed the upper room. uh, He's kind of sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look what Jesus says as he's praying to his Father. He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And we skip down to verse 24. Notice this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, okay, who's that? Well, in the immediate moment, it's the 11 disciples, but it's also us. Everyone through history, including us, it says, I desire that they may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. In other words, part of the joy set before Jesus was being to look down through time and see all those who would come to believe in him. He tasted that even when he was hanging on the cross. God gave him a little gift. When the thief became to, came to believe in him, right? Jesus said, look, today you'll be with me in paradise. So here's the principle. As followers of Jesus, we need a new perspective. We need a new gaze. Thinking all the way down to the future, to our glory, we also need another goal as well. While we're living on this earth, we can't make it all about ourselves. We've got to be thinking about Jesus and his glory. How does my life reflect Jesus? How do we glorify him by our lives? Less about how it makes me feel, but how does this magnify him? That's our new perspective. So that's the first point. The second thing is a new relationship. The second thing that occurs when a person comes to faith in Christ is a new relationship. Now, before I read the verse, you notice how often we as evangelicals talk about, you know, a relationship with God, right? We do that a lot, don't we? We tell people it's not just a religion of, you know, sacraments and, and rituals. It's a relationship, a living, real relationship with God. Now, as true that is, and I still believe that's true, you've got to admit, it's, it's a very different kind of relationship than we have with anybody else. When you have a relationship with a person, you're able to sit across the table from them. You're able to have conversations with them. You're able to eat lunch with them. You can hear their voices audibly. You're seeing their body language as they're communicating. You can see their facial expressions right? That's the kind of relationship the disciples in the upper room have had with Jesus for what? Three and a half years. All that's about to change, and they are not ready for it. Jesus says this, little children, and we, we should pause here just for a second. This is the only time recorded in the gospel where Jesus says that. It's right here, little children. He's, he's hosting the Passover. He's acting as a dad would act towards his little children and his family, revealing kind of a tender care and compassion. He says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So here's a question. What does Jesus mean by a little while? Well, in about two hours, he's going to be arrested. The next day, he's going to be crucified. Three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. Forty days after that, he's going to ascend into heaven. After that, they're not going to see him any longer. In fact, when all the disciples are kind of gathered at the Mount of Olives, when Jesus ascends, you know what the disciples are doing? Yeah. 
I don't have a picture of them doing it. There was no iPhones back in Jesus' time. So I had to find some kind of a picture where people were looking up goofily uh, and looking like they're confused or mystified. Anyway, the followers of Jesus, when Jesus ascended, they, they just watched him disappear, and then they're just standing there looking up, maybe confused or whatever. I have no idea what to do next. So an angel drops by and says, hey, you men of Galilee. Notice the women are not standing there looking like goofies, right? It's the men. <laughs> okay, just saying. Hey, you men of Galilee. Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, whom you saw going to heaven, will come back in like manner. Okay, hold that thought. If the disciples in the upper room had really known what Jesus was saying in verse 33, I think they would have blown a fuse. They really didn't get it that Jesus is going to die, even though he's told them several times. That is not what they expected. They expected a kingdom with Jesus in charge to break out. I mean, that, listen, that's what they were arguing about on the way up the mountain to Passover. That's what they were arguing about earlier this evening with Jesus in the room fighting about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. We talked about that in previous messages. So if they knew that Jesus was going to really die and then ascend into heaven and be gone for the next 2,000-plus years, they would, have gone, they'd have, they'd, they'd, they'd have blown a gasket. They'd gone crackers. That is so not what they wanted to hear. But that's what Jesus is telling them. I'm only with you a little bit longer, and then you'll see me no more. Where I'm going, you cannot come, at least not yet. I'll explain more about that a little bit next week, but that's what he's saying to them. So here's the point. They're entering into this new relationship with Christ. So far, it's been in the flesh. Going forward, it's going to be by faith. Now, he reinforces this thought throughout this evening's meal and throughout this upper room discourse. In chapter 16, for example, Jesus says to these same guys, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, can I just say that if I were in the upper room and I could beat Peter saying it, <laughs> I would have said something like this, uh, pardon me, Jesus, I don't think that's true. I don't think it's for my advantage that you go away. It's for my advantage that you just stay right here with me, always. Like it's been for the last three and a half years. That's what I want. I want to be able to hear your voice. I want to be able to see your face. I want to be able to eat meals with you. I want to be able to talk to you. I would have a, I would have a hard time believing that his going away was going to be to my advantage in any way, shape, or form. But that's what he said. That's what he promised. It's going to be better for me if he goes. He goes on in that chapter to tell us, hey, unless I go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, cannot come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, now we've got to think about what that means. Up to this point... The presence of Jesus has been fairly localized. Well, extremely localized. Wherever Jesus was, that's where he was. Pretty profound, no? In other words, if Jesus was in Jerusalem, he was not up in Galilee. And if he was up in Galilee, he wasn't in Jerusalem. But by him going back to the Father, he can send the Holy Spirit to actually live inside every believer. In fact, he actually promises, we'll see that later on, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will take up residence within every believer. So all of a sudden, he becomes a lot more universal than localized. So it's to your advantage, he says, that I go away. My point in this is all very simple. The relationship of a disciple to Jesus is not now one of sight, one of faith, like we hear in Corinthians 5, where we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, admittedly, we long for what the disciples had. 
We long for sitting around a table with Jesus, being able to hug him, being able to see his expression, hear what he's saying. And the good news is, one day we'll have that. But until then, he's weaning us off of sight of what we'd like to lean on and pushing us into a life of faith. I do not know what PBS or National Geographic show I heard this about, um, but there's the interesting thing about lobsters. And I suspect right now some of you are going, okay, how could something about lobsters have anything relevant to do with this message? Maybe I'd feel the same way if I were sitting where you are, so give me a minute. Here's the deal. Lobsters, fascinating, do not go find a shell and live in it. And then when they outgrow that shell, they find another shell. No, they, 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 they grow their own shells. And males molt every year. Females every two years. They shed their old shell and grow a new one. And if they were to stay in their old shell and not abandon it, well, it would protect them only for a little while. But eventually, they would grow out of it. It would become a prison. And if they didn't molt, if they didn't leave that shell, it would become a casket. So to live, they've got to get rid of the old shell and grow a new one. But in the time in between the shedding of one shell and the growing of the new one, they're vulnerable. They're tossed by the currents of the sea, cartwheeled through the ocean, coral could cut them to pieces, schools of fish would love to make them part of the food chain, but they won't grow unless they get rid of the old shell and get a new one. But the first time a lobster loses its shell, if it could speak, it would say something like this, man, I miss, I miss the old shell. Things look pretty good in the old shell. I want my old shell back. But they'll never grow if they don't discard it, even though they're unprotected for a period of time. Well, I think we're a little bit like that. We get tossed and tumbled through life. It can be scary. We would love the protection of Jesus right next to us, guarding us and fighting both the bad guys. We want the protection. We want to depend on something or someone to kind of hold us up, take care of us. And God's all about this process of weaning us off of those props and onto just trusting him by faith. That's the new relationship. We've got to get a new perspective and a new relationship. And the third thing is this, a new commandment. We get a new commandment. Judas left the room. The betrayer is gone. He's not listening to new commandments anyway. Turns to the 11 disciples and gives them their future marching orders, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Get it, love one another. Now, if you're like a Bible geek or something, you're thinking right about now, wait a minute. This doesn't sound like some new commandment. In Leviticus 19, which all the men who've been in our men's group reading the Bible over the last couple of years, that's an Old Testament book, third book of the scriptures. God says, you shall not bear a grudge against any of the sons or daughters of your people, but you will love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus. That makes it an old commandment, not a new one. So what is going on here? Well, the word new here doesn't mean brand new. The word here is more of a word that means a reboot, a refresher, a uh, fresh start, a new, a, new, a, new, a new connection, a new angle is what it's referring to. They have just seen a display of this, of love, of Jesus, by him washing their feet. He said, look, you've seen my love for you over the last three and a half years. 
I want you to love others like I've loved you. I want you to love each other like I've loved you. And Jesus didn't say this, but I'm thinking he's thinking it. He's saying, you loving each other is going to look a whole lot different than all the fights you've been having, including at this dinner, about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Now, the love word is the word that's agape. It means love like God's, unconditional and sacrificial. It's not a love of feeling. It's a love of the will. It's like you make a decision. I'm going to love that person. I'm going to choose to love that person. And it doesn't really matter whether they love me back. I'm going to love them regardless. I choose with a mature kind of love approach to love other people. I'm going to put myself second and others first. I'm going to sacrifice me for others. That's the love that's being referred to here. By the way, it doesn't mean liking necessarily. I can be honest with you. Love is to be employed regardless of whether you feel like for the other person. Jesus is calling us to demonstrate love regardless. I don't even think, I'm not even sure God likes everybody. I know he loves the world, but do you think he likes people who are God-haters or slur the name of Christ or do all kinds of evil stuff? Do you think, do you think God goes, I only have warm, fuzzy, emotional feelings for so-and-so? Truth is, none of us who are Jesus' followers are likable 100% of the time. Have we figured that out yet? <laughs> but God's love, Jesus' love, isn't based on our likability. It's based on his choice to love us in spite of ourselves. He loved a most unlikable world of people that he gave his son life to save them. And that's the kind of love that's being referred to here. Jesus adds this qualifier to the commandment in Leviticus. He didn't just say, I want you guys to love one another. No, I want you to love a very specific way. Notice how we should love. Love others like I have loved you. Now, that becomes the benchmark. And i got to tell you, that's a pretty high benchmark. How do you measure love? How do you do it? You measure it by flowers, gifts. How many, how many times you say, I love you in a day? Those are good reminders, I guess. But I did read about a guy in 1875, Marcel de la Pleur, who wrote a letter to a woman with the words, I love you, repeated 1,875,000 times. And you might hear that and go, especially some of you gals, man, that's so romantic. Don't get your hopes up. He had a scribe do it <laughs> and send it. So Jesus says, I want you to love, but not just any love. Love like I've loved you. I want you to love like this. Well, that's a whole different ballgame, right? Because Christ's love is sacrificial. John 15, Jesus says this. Greater love, like I'm talking about, Jesus says, has no one, uh, has no one other than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. That's an example of that kind of love. That's sacrificial love. And guess what? The disciples are going to see this play out in less than 24 hours with Jesus hanging on the cross. It's also unconditional love. When Jesus is on the cross, the first thing he does, hanging on the cross with his enemies gloating over him, is say this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm not sure that would have been the first words out of my mouth to the, mouth to the guys who were crucifying me and then spitting on me, and cursing me, and making fun of me. But here's my point. When Jesus loves, he doesn't just love lovely people deserving people. 
wonderful people. He loves people who do not love him back. He loves sacrificially and unconditionally. So if you're honest, you don't have to be, but after all, you're in church, so maybe God's watching you. You might be thinking right about now, man, this seems impossible. For me to be able to copy Jesus and do what he does, how, do, how am I going to ever pull that off? And I confess, I kind of agree with you in one hand. It, it is impossible on your own. But as a disciple following Christ, he would never give you a command that's impossible for you to do it. If he gives us a command, he's going to be able to give us the ability to do it. Does that make sense? You know that as a follower of Jesus, you and I have an unlimited reservoir and capacity to love like Jesus. Maybe you don't know that, so maybe this will help. Romans 5, 5. Our hope in Christ doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So here's the point. If God's love can flow into our hearts, don't you think God is going to be able to make sure that, our, that his love that's in our hearts can flow out of our hearts to other people? Which means that no one in our circle of relationships should ever be love-starved. He's given us that capacity. Now, here's the deal. Why should we do it? Why should we waste our time? <laughs> why should we spend our time trying to make that happen? If we're love like Jesus, why should we do it? He tells us. He tells us in verse 35. We just need to read it. By this. Well, what's the this here? Yeah, loving like Jesus. Oh, by doing this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So by loving like Jesus loves, all people are going to know, are going to be able to tell that you are a follower of Jesus. You're not going to be anybody else's disciples, just Jesus. Jesus' disciples. Boy, that's a scary verse. Let me explain why I say that, why I think it's a scary verse. In effect, you see what Jesus is doing? He is calling you to be his disciples. You've accepted the challenge. He sends the Holy Spirit, and he says, okay, now, I'm going to give the world, who's not believers, I'm going to give them permission to make a judgment call about you. I'm going to let the world look at your lives, and, they're, and I'm hoping that you're, they'll be able to say and declare, wait a minute, wait a minute, those, those Christians over there, they're the real deal. They're authentic. They are, they are genuinely followers of Jesus. Why? Because they're loving others like Jesus loved others. And the world can be able to, will be able to conclude that because of the evidence of you and me loving others like Jesus did, that's how they're going to conclude that. Here's the other thing. They'll also be able to discern that you're not a disciple of Jesus because of the way you love others or don't love others. I don't know if you noticed this. It's amazing how accurate and how sensitive non-believers are to how Christians act. Like I would, I've told you before, I would, we would go to work, get off on Friday, do the things we want to do on Saturday and Sunday. We come into the office on Monday, and people are talking about what they did, how, where they went, what movies they saw, 
and I'd be there, they, uh, you know, we'd be talking and stuff about stuff, and, 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 and they, they all knew I was a Christian, so they would be talking about some movie. They went, this is a fantastic movie, it's going to be, it's going to be up for an Academy Award, it's going to be this and that and the other, and then they would look at me and say, oh, Dwayne, this is not a movie you should see. It has stuff in here that you do not need to see because you're a Christian. I mean, and so if I come in that day and go, ah, oh, I saw that movie, all that nudity and cursing and stuff, they would be going, what is this? This is, this is not consistent with a person who's a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, they can spot the hypocrisy. They can spot the lack of following Jesus. And they know, I mean, it's amazing. If they haven't read their Bible. They don't know anything other than this. They can spot who's a genuine believer and who's not. This is why Jesus gives them permission. Okay, I'm going to let the world look at you and make a call. You know, I don't have to make the call. I'll let the world do it. So they'll just either decide, yep, they're the real deal, or nope, they're, they're faking it. They're fakes. So how do we, how do we demonstrate this? If, do we, if we put bumper stickers on our car, you think that works? Is that enough? Just bumper sticker? Some of, some of us, the way we drive, we should not have bumper stickers <laughs> on our cars. <sighs> it's by this sacrificial, unconditional love for people who maybe are not even loving us back. Because that's what Jesus did. And when people see that going on, they will be able to conclude, not even being saved people, that you're the, you're the real deal. Now, they may hate you for it. They make fun of you. But they're also going to respect it. Okay. I just think when we're possessing the Holy Spirit, we lack the ability to say we don't have the capacity with God living in us to do what Jesus is saying to do. Anyway, I also don't think it's by how much theology we stuff into our brains. And I think theology is great. But, you know, it's not the end-all and be-all unless you're employing it. I read a story about a guy, a little boy in New York. For some reason, New Yorkers seem to be playing a role in this message. little kid, he's looking at a, a window in, in, in uh, New York City. And uh, it's cold outside. He didn't have any shoes on. And so an old lady walks by, and she says, what, what are you doing there, man, young man? She says, well, I'm asking God for shoes. Well, you can imagine what she did, and she did it. She brought the guy inside. She, she asked for a basin of water, washed his feet, bought him a, several pairs of socks, and uh, bought him a pair of shoes. He was about to walk out when he felt a tug on her, on her coat. She looks down, and the little boy was looking up. She said, what do you want? She goes, excuse me. Are you God's wife? She says, what? what? He says, you just, you just remind me so much of what I would imagine God's wife would do for me. And you just did it. You know, how wonderful it must be when people say, you know, you must be related to God somehow. You must be one of his sons or daughters. By the way that you love, it's a telltale sign. Something else I can't resist before we close. Notice what Jesus says at the end of the verse. If you have love for what? Not for the whole world. Why don't you just start with each other, you disciples? Just begin by loving fellow disciples. Love each other in this church. Start there. You know, most churches, there's somebody that you don't like, somebody that you don't think likes you, and so wanna, you make sure you're sitting in a different place. They're sitting over there. You sit over there. You got all that stuff going on. That is not love. 
if you love each other in the church, then, great, carry it outside. Start loving others that way too. So in a, again, this passage, three things that Jesus gives to his disciples last night. If you're going to be my followers, you need a new perspective, a new gaze into the future, a new goal in this life, living for the glory of God. You need a new relationship. You're going to have it. I'm going to wean you off of me being present all the time, in present with you, but I'm going to be present with you through the Holy Spirit. And you're not going to be, I'm not going to be across the table from you, but I will embed myself in you, and you'll always have my attention. Finally, a new commandment, to love with that benchmark love, like Jesus loves, sacrificial, unconditional, which means it should always be flowing. Not based on how great we are, but based on how great Jesus is. So let me give you three bullet points to walk away with. Why don't we ask God to give us new sets of eyes? Not literally, of course, but just new ways of looking at things. So when you look at your treasures, look at what you own, look at the people in your life, look at what you do, you would see those things differently with a new perspective. Learn to gaze ahead at the end of the road and live as you travel that road in the here and now for the glory of God. That's a new perspective. Embrace the weaning process he's talking about here. Learn to take chances when God sort of says, hey, do this. You're going you know, to be like the lobster. You're not going to want to do it because it's scary. It's scary being without the shell. But growth means periods of vulnerability. I mean, stepping out by faith into something you believe God is asking you to do can be like a step into the unknown. But guess what? It's not unknown to God who's asking you to take the step. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he's leading you there. And if he's leading you there, he'll provide all that you need for the experience. Number three, Learn to measure your following of Christ, your discipleship, your Christianity. Not by how many people love you, how many people you love. And I kind of find it works in tandem. You love enough people, you're going to be a magnet. Because loving like Jesus loves is a, makes Jesus appealing. So let me pray for us, and we'll get you out of here. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Uh, boy, there's challenging things here, challenging things here. Um, we don't like to in, uh, feed our intellects. We like to feed our lives with you and have you infect us in such a way that we are your missionaries. We're your voice uh, to the people around us, to people in this room that we love each other here. Let's start there. And also, as we leave this place, we go to our grocery stores, go to CVS, go to our jobs. Uh, I know in our jobs there's going to be people that... <laughs> If we're just human beings, we would detest. How about we make a decision to love them anyway and just see what God does? Take a step. Take a leap of faith. Because that's what we're doing now, leaping into faith. Lord, thank you for this. As we take communion, maybe there's some things we talked about today that you have gotten uh, uh, into our faces about, that you have convicted us about, that you are challenging us. And we've heard you. We have to decide, are we going to take up the mantle? Are we going to pick that up and run with it? Are we going to let you live through us? Are we just going to be about ourselves? Help us to make the decision today to follow you. And if we're not followers of you, think about how exciting it could be if today you would basically say, hey, I think I'm going to trust this Jesus. He sounds like he's too loving to disregard. And we pray all this in Christ's name as we take communion. Ponder him.
Amen.